0: My name is Daniel Morden. I'm a storyteller from Wales in the UK. For 30 years I've made my living telling myths, legends, fairy tales and folk
2: tales. Now during this crazy year, stories I read or heard many years ago have wormed their way back into my memory, like a snatch of melody I couldn't place. It was as if they were whispering, listen, I can help. So
0: when I track down the stories, they seem to have something to say about the pandemic and the way our lives have changed. So I've told these stories in a podcast.
2: Every episode consists of just one story. It goes out weekly on Sundays. And if you're interested, you can give it a try at www.danielmorden.org podcast. Thanks for your time.
0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 1020 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. Today is our season 10 finale, and we're already hard at work on season 11, due out later this spring. Don't worry, though. In addition to more episodes of The Private Collector, we'll be doing a little something we're calling The Darkness In Between, featuring at least one short story told by me each month. Perhaps more if time permits. These stories will vary in length and will be just the author's words, my voice, and your ears. I'm looking forward to sharing these stories with you to help whet your appetite for Season 11 when we return with longer tales, multiple voice actors, and beautiful custom scores by Nico Viteze. A big thank you to those of you who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. In fact, the librarian occasionally selects a review to read on the show, so if you submit a five-star rating and review of the show in iTunes, there's a good chance that the librarian might share yours on the show in the near future. Now, while we're in production for Season 11, be sure to get a copy of our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, available on Amazon in print and Kindle, to help keep you company. Grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show, and the book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda, who does a lot of our artwork for the show. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get wicked today, a big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. We've had several new supporters sign up on Patreon, and we all deeply thank you. Without you, this show would not be possible. On behalf of our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, Wicked You, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Today's episode features a dark tale by an author who is no stranger to the halls of the Wicked Library. We're proud to close out the season with a story by the very talented Pippa Bailey, who wrote today's tale just for us. Performing today's story is the amazing Guy Fort. The custom score for today's tale was created by Nico Viteza of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the story, find Pippa's work and buy it. It keeps her writing more. You can learn more about Pippa and find links to her other work on her bio page at thewickedlibrary.com. Now let's close out season 10 properly. Let's get wicked. Ah,
1: so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs>
2: I flick a lump of smoldering coal away from the edge of the campfire towards the glowing orange center and adjust my jeans. They always pull too low when I sit down. I cross my legs on my smooth boulder perch, a perch I claimed at our first midnight mayhem campout, and take a long slurp from my juice box. It isn't precisely mayhem at these gatherings, more mundane. When considering some of the stories the others are bringing as their scariest story ever. We've grown in numbers since the first evening in the summer. Now, October is drawing to a close and Halloween is upon us. And I finally get to tell my scary story. Well, at least as close to my own as it's going to get. When I was little, my dad used to tell me about life back in eighty. He and my grandma moved over here years ago. He told me all about the real monsters out there, bigger and scarier than over here. He always told me, you don't know what it is to be really afraid. So I've decided I'll give you a proper fright. I placed my finger to my lips to silence Jackie before she begins chatting again. My dad told me about the sack man. A boogeyman who steals children to make magic. Real voodoo magic. Some people call him Tontum Maku. Others just call him Uncle Gunny Sack. I spit onto the coals and watch the others recoil as Amber spark and dance towards them. Now don't piss your pants, kiddies, as I tell you the story of eighty Graffiti and Tonton Maku. The Gunny Sack man crawls by at night. Close your mouths and clinch eyes tight. I run my fingers over the graffiti paint letters that dub the front of my neighbor's home. Some parts of the words are chipped and pink peels away from an old tin door, faded by the blistering sun, but never truly erased. It's a warning, or so my man says. She says, Tonton himself came by at night and wrote those words. He likes to scare little children before he scoops them up In a sack and takes them away. I don't believe he's really real. When I was smaller, maybe I did think he could hurt me. Believe that if I looked at him, he would take my eyes and my tongue and make me into something bad. Now, I'm sure it's just my man trying to make me behave. And no stupid man with a sack is going to scare me. I'm going to prove to her he isn't real. City Soleil like its name, is a blistering community of brightly colored homes made from anything anyone could find. Tarnished metal sparkles against the cement and wooden fixtures of shacks that line the streets. Waves of heat ripple off tin roofs, twisting and coiling like toxic gas floating around the open sewer pits in the bad parts of town. I step back and lean against the hot metal of my front door and let the sunlight bake the bare skin of my chest and shoulders. I inhale deeply. The air hangs thick with sweat and blood and tobacco. My man says, I'm not going out today. But we're so close, so close to finding the rest of Tuntun's poem. We all know that one line dubbed on my neighbor's house isn't the full story. There's more. And we spend months trying to find it all. To find Tonton himself, if he really exists. Stanley and Ricardo, Stan and Ricky to me, we're the best gang in town. We don't need guns or fighting to be better than any other gangs. We're smart and strong, as much of a gang three ten-year-olds can be. Still, we're definitely the best. And we found the next line of the poem already. It's near Ricky's house. It's strange that we've been walking past it for so many years and never noticed the words before. We're going to find the rest of the bone before any of the other kids and prove Tonton isn't really a monster. He can't beat us and he'll never catch us in his gunny sack. We're too smart and too fast for him. Stan has the brains. He could plan his way out of anything. He stopped us getting a hiding from my maman so many times I can count them all. That doesn't mean Stan doesn't talk shit sometimes. Ricky is the muscle. He can take a punch and hit back twice as hard. I swear he could put his fist through a wall if he tried hard enough. The slabs outside his house are all cracked from him stomping about when he doesn't get his way. He has a hell of a temper on him. Still, you can be sure he has your back in a fight. If you're with Ricky, nothing terrible will ever happen to you. But then again, you wouldn't want to be against him. I'm the boss, the oldest by two whole months, most grown up of all of us, and I'm the charmer. I love uh, the way girls' tongues stroke their lips as they say, Samuel. I know how to get what I want when I want, and I won't take no for an answer, not even from Maman. I step away from my front door and wander around the side of the house, digging my toes into the dirt like a chicken as I move. Maman is away cleaning at the packing factory. She'd only taken me there once. I got bored pretty quickly. They have all that space in that vast building and don't do anything fun with it. Adults are so stupid. Jogging down the lane, I wheel between several dusty alleyways. The journey now second nature to me. I hop cracks in the ground, avoiding acrid puddles of streaming chemicals and change to autopilot as I speed towards Stan's house, my bare feet kicking up dust and pebbles. If we can find the rest of the poem before it gets dark, I can get home and my will never know I've been out. She beat me last night for coming home so late. My said she was scared. One of the gangbangers or Tantun had taken me. She's a real warrior. As she spanked me, she said she prayed to good for me not to die, and prayed for a smart boy, but that she hadn't been given one yet. The raw ridges from her sandal when she scalped my buttocks, throbbed and grind against my shorts as I run. I don't care what she says, we've sworn going to find Tatun. I know I can make it to stands in ten minutes. I don't own a watch, but I learned when I was real little to hum songs when I go out. If I know how long a song is, I can count how long I'm out if I hum it over and over. I play Dela by Johnny Clegg on repeat in my head and shimmy along an open drain, careful not to catch any gray water on my feet and hop over a fence to stands. I hammer on the door. Hot metal stings my knuckles. No answer. Painted bones hang from twine around the front of his door. They clack like teeth as they sway knocking into the side of the house. I love those bones. I think I love them more because my man hates me being their magic stuff. I grin and stop a swinging string, rubbing my fingers along the sun-bleached bone. Stan! Stan! I yell through a crack in the door. I press my bare shoulder against it and shove. Sweat sizzles on the rusty metal. It doesn't move. Stan must have gone to help his dad at the market. He sells weird things my mom told me never to touch. Not bad magic things, good magic things. Things that help people. He says he only makes things that Baron Samiti knows that people need. His dad says Samiti helps the living and dead, and Maman ought not to be scared of him. She should know better. Stan's dad always leaves a little pile of grilled peanuts in a jar by the door as an offering for Samidi. He says he'll leave cigars sometimes, but they're so expensive and he likes them too much himself. One time, Stan gave one of his dad's skull. I think maybe it had been a dog. It was painted all pretty with the inside all black and dark and big white lines on it for the teeth. Maman made me throw it out. She said I'm not to bring anything else magic home with me. She tried to stop me seeing Stan after that. But I can do anything I want and she can't break our gang up. We're too important. I circle Stan's house and give up. Well, screw it. He's going to miss out on all the glory when Ricky and I find Tontoon and prove this is nothing but a rubbish story for kids. I kick a couple of empty cans along the track to Ricky's house, watching them bounce and clack against the rough stony dirt. Maybe Stan is already at Ricky's waiting for me. That would be pretty good. Though he really should have waited for me here After all. I'm the boss. I draw closer to Ricky's house and edge along a black slurry pond that scars the ground near Ricky's part of town. It seems to grow continually, swallowing anything in its path. I've watched as shacks collapsed in that swamp when we've had terrible flooding. I hold my nose as I jog past and close in on the building I'm looking for, a street before Ricky's. This collapsed building is where we found the second part of the poem. Letters scarred into the cement of an old silo, lines drawn with a fingertip. It looks timeless as if it was baked into the rock as it solidified. He will find you if you follow his words, be you not seen and be you not heard. Ricky's front door hangs open, slightly loose, and the hinge where he slammed it against the wall so many times. I shout into the darkness, but it's clear no one is home. I pad inside and peer around. The house looks trash. At first, I think maybe men from one of the chamirs have been here, but the more I look around, it's clear Ricky has thrown a tantrum and made a mess again. I step over slivers of broken wood and shards of glass and head to Ricky's corner of the room. His sheets twist across his mat. Some worn through and place a single thread, struggling to hold on like a spiderweb. Amid his bedsheets is a scrap of paper with a scrawl of words between creases and folds. So far you have come, and so far you will go. He watches and waits in his home below, followed by the word San. He found more of the pawn without me. I can't believe it. How can he do this without me? That's where they both are. I try not to believe it, but I know already. They found the next line and have gone off without me. They should have known my mama would never stop me getting out. We promised to do this together. I consider tearing up the remainder of his bed sheets. Something to punish him for going off without me. But being on his bad side just isn't worth it. Fuming, I kick his door on the way out. Sand, where is sand? I punch my hand against the side of his home, scuffling my knuckles and puncturing my fingers with shards of rust. Fork, I scratch the splinters free and lick at my bloodied hand like a dog. Spinning on the spot? I tried to work out the best way down towards the unfurling coastline in the distance. The day we found the second line of the poem, I couldn't have been more proud. It wasn't easy to find, like the words dubbed on my neighbor's home. At first, we didn't think they were real. I tried to show the other kids from my corner, but they didn't want to know, all of them too scared. Only my game was tough enough to go further. I tried to tell my man what we had found, but it was strange. The more I told her about it, the less she seemed to remember what I had said. I even tried to write the words down, but she doesn't read so good. At first, I thought she was just being silly, pretending so I would stop looking for him. Still, whenever I would talk about the poem, her eyes would glaze over like she was looking really far away as something I couldn't see whispering, the gunny sack man will keep you. I plod onto the dirty sand and avoid catching my feet on any shards of broken glass or decaying refuge that lines the shore. The gray sea claws and old plastic bottles and clots of rag and paper batting them down like a puppy with a toy. From far away, when I look down to the coast, I can imagine all the refuge's shells and diamonds sparkling in the sun. But close up the sand lies heavy with rot. I pinch my nose and meander along a worn path, weaving side to side, scoring every inch of solid surface for the words. I've been walking almost an hour with no luck, and no sign of two backstabbers either. I rub my sore hand against my shorts, little spots of blood punctuating the fabric. Up ahead, Old pillars of cement shoot out of the sand like triangular spears pointing towards the sun, twisted and gnarled with years of sand eroding the surface. The clusters hangs like Roman columns, but closer and more numerous. I draw closer. Something doesn't look right. One of the spears has a colossal line cut into it, sharp and deep. I rub my eyes and squint. There are more and more lines gouging the surface. I can almost make out letters, but it doesn't make sense. I move left and right and try to understand what I am looking at. The further I turn, the more the pillar's scars fall into view. Sure enough, there, the third line of the poem is, the letters are so big and spread so far. I can see why people haven't ever noticed them before. Three lines, so that leaves two to go if What the other kids are saying is right. One kid said he'd work out where the fourth one is. And he said he knows where to find the last one, too. He wouldn't tell us where, though. Glory boy. None of us have seen him since. Stan says maybe Tonton got him. Stan's smart, but he's not that smart if he really believes in Tonton. Perhaps the kid just got lost and is too much of a loser to admit he hasn't found anything. I snicker at my joke and run towards the spears. Touching the letters makes them feel more real. I hang around for a few minutes to work out where the boys could have gone whilst I trace the words from the third line, looking for clues of where to hunt next. So far you have come, and so far you will go. He watches and waits in his home below. I guess I need to keep on moving away from town further down the coast. I'm not sure what a home below means. He wouldn't be underwater. I won't step foot in the ocean if I don't have to. The gray waves batter the shore, spirals of congealed oil and detergent foam and spin like rainbow mirrors, fouling the sand with every stripe. I hum my song eight times, nine times, 10 times. The track twists and leads me away from the shoreline into the grounds of an old sugar factory. The vast gray building stands like a gigantic tomb, its walls pitted with orange and black rust holes like cigar burns. Abandoned buildings never stay abandoned for too long. Everybody needs a place to be. Weeds break through the cracked concrete, making twisted vines that cover the ground in a muted green amid the gray dust that looks almost like powdered sugar. A couple of smaller huts, perhaps from equipment storage or even security offices, dot the factory grounds. The air swims with an old sweetness like souring rum. It eeks out from the main structure and bellows in clouds of perfumed dust. Biting my lip, I set off towards the factory entrance. Footprints puck the dusty floor. The boys were here before me. I can't believe it. They really went off without me. I jog closer, determined to find the fourth line of the poem all by myself. If they think they can beat me to it, they're fucking wrong. Bang! Something clunks and rattles to my left. I can clearly see one side of the little huts, now that I am closer. Each slab of concrete that makes the hut's walls are long pieces slutted together, between them. A sticky blackness oozes from the cracks like tar in a smoker's lungs. A wooden door lists open, every inch marked in symbols and patterns. Painted skulls, human skulls, sit in rows beside the front wall. Black and purple candles sit in bowls of what looks like blood. A fire pit burns, a pot bubbling above it a dark liquid dribbling over the sides. Through the open door, I can see hooks and chains hanging from the ceiling. Some hooks hang with slabs of meat set to dry. Others seem to have bones chained to them. Some with tarred feathers, others bare. The more I look at the bones, the clearer it is they aren't animal bones. Maybe all bones, perhaps they came from the same place as the skulls. I need to get away from here before I am spotted. Still, my eyes are drawn back to the bone hanging from the length of the chain. It looks like a leg bone, long and thin. It has to be a child's bone. It doesn't look right, though it's the wrong color. Bone is white or yellow. This looks pink. There's flesh clinging to the surface. It's clearly been scraped with a knife, but some meat remains. This bone is fresh. I've cleaned enough bones for my man to know that it's no animal bone. Do you know what some of them bad voodoo priests do to children? My mama man asked me when I talked about Stan's dad and his magic. They take little boys like you and they cut you open from chin to stomach. Chijua lying down my body with her thumb. I remember coping at the stroke of her nail on my desk. Then they pull you insides out and throw them down in a bucket and hang the rest of you upside down over their magic pot to catch all your blood. She made a noise like someone slurping soup. Once you good and drained, they slice your fat from your flesh and your organs make porthesis, scraping away all the good stuff. Her nails grated against a cement wall inside her home, leaving a plume of powder and their way. Them other bitch. They grind up or dry out. Your bones and skin make special tools. Then they mix your blood with sugar to cure pain. They kill you and use you up. The mighty priests don't need touch you to claim. Wriggling their fingers in your brain from far away make you see things, make you do things. You think you know where you is before you know you're offering up your body for their magics. I put my fingers in my ears, but she pulled my hands away and made me listen. They take you soul too, she continued. They kill you and they take it so you can't rest and Samiri can't keep you. They make you suffer and make you hurt others or them take it when you're still alive. Turn you to a zombie, make you look dead and holler, use you for their fun and games. Then she smiled, kissed me on the head and told me goodnight. I stand still too scared to move and risk letting the hut owner know I'm here I turn on the spot and consider running towards the exit and not stopping until I get home the sound of feet shuffling towards the doorway makes my decision for me I'll be safer heading to the factory building it's closer a crooked old man his face painted with black and white to imitate a skull leans out of the hut he grins a warped toothy smile. Several teeth have been replaced with golding pads that look like they've been forced into place, mangling the gums around them. He slaps a bloody, wet hand against his bare chest. Fluid flying and spitting little droplets hammering the dusty ground. A voodoo pressed. A bad one. I run. My feet slip and skid as I push through the dust and plant matter willing my legs faster to get me inside the factory and to find some way I can escape or hide. He's making some evil magic in his hut. I've never seen voodoo like this before. I know he is in Taunton, but he doesn't have to be Taunton to scare me. I know real evil when I see it. It's just some bad priest making potions from children. Must have chosen this place as it's far away that no one will ever come snooping around except maybe kids chasing after the Tonton legend. I can't force the images of the man's bloody hands slapping his chest out of my head, whose bones is that in his hut. Did he get to stand in Ricky? There's no way that old priest could have stand up to Ricky. Ricky would have taken him down. I press on, forcing myself towards the factory entrance. A folding metal door hangs limply from the graping doorway its chains long since rusted open. Inside is dark, but my eyes quickly adjust to the gloom as I shoot across the old wooden factory floor. I reach the middle of the open floor. Despite all the rust, the building looks solid. I curse the darkness and run towards the far wall chasing a little flutter of sunlight shining through a worn hole in the corrugated iron. The priest pants in the distance. His wheezing breaths echo in the cavernous space. He keeps a good pace for such an old man. I creep along the back wall looking for an exit, trying to be as silent as possible, hoping the darkness will hide me. I crawl behind one of a dozen pillars that support the building's beam, but still find no door. The priest's feet thud on the floorboards didn't stop. He is listening for me. I clap my mouth shut and attempt to breathe through my stuffy nose, but so much dust and all sugar and the air makes me want to sneeze. A shaft of light cautious down from the floor above, peeking through the old wood like a golden yolk seeping from a cracked egg. The priest's footsteps start up again. His eyes must have adjusted to the light. All he has to do is follow my footprints and he'll find me. I slip past another beam and spot the staircase one way up, one way down. Not the basement. I launch up the stairs, hoping their creaks won't give me away. There's more light up here. Blistered holes in the roof let light in and illuminate the lack of hiding spaces. I find a window and peer out. I think about jumping. At home? We run and climb and jump, but this is too high, the ground too hard. I remember when Ricky broke his leg jumping from his roof. My man beat me for not stopping him and for being on the roof. I run back towards the stairs. Maybe I can get around him and out of the front again, done, done. The priest starts up the stairs, he coughs and spits on the floor as he stumps closer. I back away from the stairwell, my heart racing, my eyes fuzzy from the fear like bees are humming in my brain. Maybe I'm just scared, or maybe the priest is starting his magic on me, I don't know. He reaches the top of the landing and blinks through the brightness before locking his eyes on me. He wipes spittle from his mouth like a red-crusted hand and laughs. He slips a hand behind his back and pulls something out of his pocket like a knife as stained and dirty as the priest himself. I back further away, something moves below my foot. I look down, the priest lunges, crack. The floor gives away below me and I drop. It happens so fast that by the time I look towards the priest, his grin has gone and he shrinks as I move further away. I try to roll as I hit the floor and save myself from being more hurt. I hit the ground but it's two splinters under the force and I carry on falling deeper into the bowels of the factory. I struggle to draw a breath. My back screams from the collision and I sharp pain tears at my hip. I shoot towards the ground in hope for a softer landing when the last hit. I strike the metal floor so hard it falls under me like a candy wrapper. I sink through and I finally drop onto the concrete and smash my head on the floor. Yelping pushes every drop of air out of my lungs. My eyes adjust to the dark, I'm able to draw in a fresh breath. The air down here is thick and moist, not like the rest of the factory. Rot clings to every surface like oil black and oozing. My body pulses, my back twitching as I try to sit. My hip hurts the worst. Blood pools by my leg. I yank my shorts to the side and stare at a chunk of splintered wood that is torn through my skin. It looks seamlessly bonded with my flesh. I touch the wood. It sends a shiver of pain down my leg and makes my foot dance against the floor. I grit my teeth and scream as I pull the chunk free. It comes out whole, leaving nothing but a few bits of dirt stuck in the wound. I throw the wood away and pull my shorts back, pressing the cloth against the seeping hole something bangs about high above me. The priest leads his face into the first hole high above and shouts something I can't hear. His words lost over the thumping of my head and the fast space of the building. He vanishes. I look around for something to lean on or a way to get out of this pit. It looks like an old storage room. Dirty cans and barrels line the outside of the walls. It looks like it's made of several different rooms cut into the ground. More banging. The priest reappears above the metal hole, his face all red and sweaty. He hisses a curse at me through his teeth and disappears again. Behind me, I hear a thump. He must have found a door to the basement. Pulling myself to my feet, I back against one of the walls and rest on a metal drum. Thump. 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 It sounds like the priest is throwing himself against the door or pulling at it and not succeeding. I let out the breath I've been holding, wheezing as the air leaves me. The noise stops and the priest reappears at the hole. His words are still fuzzy against the din in my head. He says something about me not being worth anything down here and that he's too old to come down and get me. He says he'll be waiting for me with his knife when I climb out. Everything else he says, between spit globs firing down through the hole, is lost to the echoes. Then he's gone. I don't know for how long. I need to find a way out. I limp around the room looking for the door he'd been hammering on, putting weight on my legs, stings, but it isn't as bad as I expected It hurts about as much as Maman's shoes when she's really mad. A broken set of folding stairs leads up to a metal trap door in the ceiling. The bolt is rusty and bent. The bin looks new. So does the pile of broken wood from the stairs on the floor beneath it. I'm not getting out that way. Oh no, I haven't hummed my song. I have no idea how long I've been away from home now. The light is fading, which means my man will be home soon. She'll know something is wrong if I'm not there, especially if I'm out late again. She knows I don't want to be spanked. She'll come find me if I don't come home. I can hear other voices down here, whispers, maybe spirits. They could guide me out. I limp towards the sounds. They don't sound boomy like the priest's voice. They sound like my voice. Leaning against a wall up ahead are Stan and Ricky. I think I know it's them before I even see them. But I'm so glad it is. I'm so happy they're okay. And the priest hasn't had them. They have all their bones. And I'm not alone anymore. I want to be angry at them and call them all the terrible things I've been thinking. But now I see them again. All I feel is relieved. Door is broken. Did you do that, I ask? They both nod. Stan coughs and wipes his mouth his face covered in dust and dirt. Ricky shoves his hand into a pile of brown powdery-looking stuff and rams it into his mouth. They must have stored some of the old sugar down here. The stuff they had used to make rum. You should have waited for me, I say, limping closer to their walls. The ground is different here, rocky like a cave. It doesn't look like the other room. Had it always been here and the old factory built on top, Ricky shrugs and points to my leg before shoving another handful of sugar into his mouth. I don't think he's really bothered about the blood pouring down my leg until he asks, Are you okay? Took you long enough to find us. I thought you said you're smart. I rub my hand against my shorts and I say, I'll be fine. I'm no girl. Stan points to a doorway behind him. Not a door. Smarter more a tunnel cut into the rock and what looks like candlelight flickering deep inside. I hadn't noticed it before. Way out? I ask. Ricky grins and points to the top arch of the tunnel. There, cut into the stone, is a faded set of words hard to read in the darkness. I'm angry, or I want to be angry at them. Angry, they found it without me. Mad, they left me alone. But all of that is lost the second I read these words. Inside his sack is where your will cower. He'll tear you open and then devour. Is this it? I whisper to the others. They nod in unison. I don't need them to answer, but I need to know. I need someone to confirm what I am reading is real. I shiver. This is it. We finally found his lair, if you could call it that. I can prove to my man he isn't real. And the other kids on our street will know we the bravest gang around. I look into the tunnel, letting my eyes follow the candlelight. At the end is a room of some kind. On the wall, there's something written in black that I'm too far away to read. It looks like paint, but similar in color to the dry blood on my leg. I know it isn't paint. I turn and I stand if he could read it. He squints for a while before shaking his head and says, too far away. In we go. We're going to find him and be heroes, Ricky grunted. He pushes Stan towards the entrance, but Stan pulls away, shaking. I grit my teeth. Fine. Stan, you go in the middle if you're going to be stupid. Ricky, you can go first. You can stop anyone, and I'll go at the back in case anything else happens, okay? Plus, my leg is going to slow me down. Ricky pushes Stan to one side, shaking his head at him, and crawls into the tunnel. It's a tight fit. Stan clambers in after him. He keeps looking back at me as if he wants me to tell him he can wait this out. He decided to find this without me. He's coming to see the last line of the poem and to prove that Tonton isn't real. I know Stan thinks he is real. He lies a lot and says he agrees with us that it's all made up just to scare kids. But I know... He's just lying. We struggle along the tunnel. It gets wider as we draw closer to the room with the candle. And by halfway, we can almost stand up. Ricky shouts over his shoulder that he can see the last line and starts trying to make out the words. He isn't a perfect reader. You came, Use. He stops trying to read when Stan pushes past him to get to the front. I guess he's more desperate to read it than he is frightened that this truly is Tontun's lair. I am Tonton Makut. You came, you saw, you spoke my name and now my child, it's you I'll claim. Stan shouts the words back down the tunnel to me and that's the last thing he ever says. He makes a gurgling noise and vanishes from the tunnel's edge. Ricky starts screaming until something cuts him off a something that scrapes against the side of the tunnel, something that sounds big and heavy, far bigger than Ricky. Ricky's body blocks me from seeing anything. He quivers and shakes, his shirt changing from dirty white to red, red and sticky and growing looser as it flops off his body to the floor. A silver blade shoots out of holes in his back over and over, spraying the walls in blood. I want to scream, but no sounds come out. If I'm quiet, maybe he won't know I'm here. I think back to the first line of the poem, the warning, Close mouth, close eyes. I clamp a hand over my mouth and screw my eyes shut. Around me I hear the sound of blades striking stone, ripping and tearing, not sure if it's flesh or fabric. Something thuds on the floor of the tunnel and rolls towards me. Coming to a stop against my bare foot, I let my toes reach out to touch the warm, sticky thing that rests against me. Tight twist of hair. I move my foot further over and find a nose and two empty eye sockets. I retch but go it back down. A voice calls out to me, a sound like silk like the slow burn of rum, like the way hot sunshine feels on your back. Totten is coming for me. He doesn't know my name, but he knows why I'm here. His silken voice coils around me like the smoke from a cooking pot, soaks my skin and dribbles off in chocolate notes. I shake my head and back down the tunnel, it growing tighter as I move. I drop to my knees trying to move away from the scraping sound of whatever Tuntum really looks like following me back into the basement. I want to cry, to yell at him to go away, anything to make him stop, but he closes in on me. I feel long spindly fingers scratching at my arm trying to pull my hand away from my mouth. I break free from the grip and shuffle faster along the tunnel. I fall out of the exit and sprawl onto the floor. Maybe I can climb up onto that ladder and force the door open somehow. No, wait, how can I even find the door with my eyes shut? There has to be another way out of here. How else does Tonton get out or does he go out? Does he just wait for another stupid kid like us to find him? Maybe that's why that other kid never came back. I try to remember the layout of the room, how to get into the other room. I shuffle across the ground towards what I can only assume are the barrels I come across when I fell through the floor. I reach out and touch something solid. I turn around and try to face the direction I've come. Leaning back against the barrels, I listen for any sound of thunthun in the room. I can't hide from something I can't see. I feel the ridges of the barrel against my back. It doesn't feel right. The ridges are too many. They feel like ribs. The thing I've leaned against wraps too long and bony arms around me, squeezing tight. Tutun's whispers plead with me to open my eyes, to look at him. He is so lonely and just wants a friend. Can I be his friend? Can I look at him and tell him my name? Tutun's grip on me loosens as I pull away. He can't hurt me if I feel my eyes and mouth shut. I know it's something I should do, but... I didn't think it would be enough to stop him from hurting me. Is this one of those rules monsters are supposed to follow? Like vampires asking permission to enter a house? I curl into a ball on the floor and bury my face in my hands. My nose whistles as I try to calm my breathing. So desperate not to open my mouth. Not even a crack. Close your mouths and clench eyes tight. The silken voice grows less silky. It becomes angry. It doesn't beg anymore. It demands. I should open my eyes because I don't matter. I should give in to him because it is his domain. I should give up because no one will find me here. I will stay his forever in his pit and keep my face buried. But it's hard to breathe through all this dirty sugary dust. It fills my nostrils and stings my throat as it slides down. Silent tears streak my face. I feel their heat. I hear them drum on the ground. Close your mouths and clench eyes tight. Tutin tells me my Maman doesn't love me. That my friends don't love me. That he will love me if I'll show him one of my smiles. I want to tell him that he's wrong. That Maman does love me. And that I don't care if Stan and Ricky don't love me. I love them and they're my brothers. I want to tell him to go away... That he should go back to his hole and he can't have me. That I know I am smart as Stan and strong as Ricky and I won't let him take me. I hear their voices all around. They beg me for help. They tell me that Tonton has them and I need to come and help. But their voices don't sound right. They strain like a boiling pot's hiss. They scrape like claws on stone. In my head, I scream at them to go away. I shout that they're liars. I think he can hear my thoughts because their voices go away. I think maybe he can only steal the voices of people he's heard. Takes out their tongues and gobbles them up to talk like that. I wait to see what more tricks he can pull out of his gunny sack. Close your mouth and clench eyes tight. The room is silent. He doesn't whisper anymore. There's a steady click which, at the time, I realize his fingers tapping on stone. He is waiting for me. I hear a clack of teeth mashing together. They don't sound sharp. They sound dull as a hammer on rock, grinding, tearing teeth, not slicing. The stench of old sugar hits me again. I can't understand how Ricky could have shoveled this stuff into his mouth and stood the taste. I distract myself with thoughts of my friends alive, of the three of us on adventures, but all thoughts lead me back to the poem, following the poem to prove that Tuntin isn't real, but he is real. I wonder how many other children have ended up down here. Does he have a pile of skulls in that room like the priest has outside? Does he eat children or does he just like to hurt them? In town? Children go missing all the time. Sometimes they're found, broken, used up and spat out. But more often, they never come back. I wonder how many of them totten this clay. Has anyone else ever fought back before? If what I'm doing is fighting, close your mouths and clinch eyes tight. I hate that I'm lying on the floor crying for my man. I call him every rude word I can think of without even opening my mouth, silent curses. I pray to God to save my soul when people find me, that he will let me go to Guinea. Totun tells me that I will be his pet. He pulls at my legs and drags me across the room, grit and sugar and dirt tear at my skin as I grind along the floor. His voice feels like ice, like electricity smells in a storm like gunfire sounds in the night when you know it's outside your bedroom window and it would just take one stray bullet to end everything. He yanks me hard, and pulls something over my head. I know that smell, that feel. He's putting me into his sack. It grazes down my arms as he pulls it lower. I don't fit all the way, and he tightens it around my ankle. Air quats against my feet as he moves. Close your mouths and clench eyes tight. You will be my pet, he tells me again. He taps when he walks, like a man with a cane. I don't know if he walks with one or has more than two legs. The tick-tock of his walk moves further away. I try to wiggle out of the bag, but it holds me fast. I lie there in prison, preparing to die. Close your mouths and clench eyes tight. Close your mouths and clench eyes tight. So, did he get out and stuff? I mean, he has to have escaped if he told you the story. Ben chimes in, ruining the pivotal moment of my scary story. I grimace and continue. My grandmother found him After looking for two days, she followed footprints to the factory. She knew the kids were off chasing the Taunton legend. She got help from a couple of guys at the packing factory to break through the door and pull him out of the hole. Ben starts to talk again, but I cut him off. No, they didn't see anything. I'm still not sure if my dad is telling me the truth or whether he was just telling his kid a scary story to make them behave. This kind of stuff comes full circle. Parents scare children who scare children who scare children. I guess, if it is true, maybe grown-ups can't see Taunton. He is a boogeyman after all. As for my dad... My grandma beat him black and blue for making her worry. That was after he'd healed from being stuck in that pit for days with a hole in his leg. Parents are funny like that. So remember when you go home. The gunny sack man crawls by at night. Close your mouths and clinch eyes tight.
1: Hello, kiddies! So you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. (laughs) Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Led yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? <laughs>